Hey everyone, welcome to the Monday live stream with yours truly, Dr. Sarah Webb. I am the founder of Colorism Healing, a leader in raising awareness, shifting attitudes, and taking action to dismantle colorism around the globe. I'm really excited about today's topic. We are talking about intersectionality, how it impacts or how it applies to colorism. And I'm going to share a few specific examples for businesses and brands. But before we get started, be sure to say hello. Let me know where you're tuning in from. I do like interactive lives, so I will do my best to save time at the end for your questions. But you can comment or leave your questions throughout the talk. And this is part of an ongoing series that I'm doing based on my ebook slash PDF called Corporate Colorism, Why Business Leaders Should Upgrade Their Anti-Racist Strategies. I've lost track of, track of what week we're in. <laughs> But I started several weeks ago, so if you have not caught the first part of the series, please go back and catch it. We talk about the history of colorism, definitions of colorism, different types of colorism. So now we're going to be looking at the impact specifically within hiring practices, the educational pipeline, pay inequality. Yes, things that are impacted by colorism that people don't even realize. Okay, so this week we're still laying some of the groundwork by thinking about colorism intersectionally. We should think about all things intersectionally, but colorism is my particular area of focus. So let's begin by acknowledging the fact that even when we see affirming representations of dark-skinned people, and as someone who is in this conversation every day and who is myself an advocate for colorism, I see this so often that even when we bring dark-skinned people to the table or when we are trying to promote positive and affirming representations of those people, they are very often traditionally or conventionally acceptable, quote-unquote, or respectable in many other ways, right? So a lot of times the dark-skinned people who are most celebrated, most affirmed, even in spaces when we talk about colorism, are cisgendered women or dark-skinned black men. A lot of times they are thin, able-bodied, or they have an athletic build or frame. And then even thinking about featureism, so a lot of times they have thin, thin noses or chiseled features. And a lot of times they are wearing their hair straight or they have naturally looser curl textures, right? And so part of my mission is to not just increase representation for dark-skinned people, but to diversify the representation of diverse people, diverse dark-skinned people, right? And I like saying that, diverse dark-skinned people, because there is so much diversity even amongst us as dark-skinned people that is still not adequately represented and definitely not adequately celebrated, okay? Um, so... A few specific intersections, and first I want to acknowledge that intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. She's a law professor, so definitely go back and check out her work if you want to dive more into intersectionality more broadly speaking. Um, but for me, there are a few specific intersections that people most often know that we see having a larger frequent impact on colorism, right? And so different things can impact or influence how we navigate the world in our skin tone. Um, but some things tend to have a greater impact. And my theory is that the things that are most visible, right, the aspects of our identity that are most visible sometimes do have a more immediate impact or a more immediate influence. So in the past live stream, I talked about educational levels, right? And so yes, having a doctorate degree um, gives me a benefit or 
gives me access to things and opportunities that dark-skinned women who don't have higher education might not get. However, that is something that if I'm walking through a grocery store or if I'm being pulled over by the cops or if I um, am trying on clothes, right, or just minding my own business walking down the sidewalk in New York City, right, no one's going to see uh, my level of education, right? And so we have to be mindful of things that in certain contexts, one of your identities might have a larger impact than they do in other contexts, right? Okay, so a few of the main intersections that we most often talk about and I think people report based on people's testimonies, based on a lot of the research, are number one, gender and gender identity. And as I explain these, feel free to drop additional intersections in the chat. Um, if I have time, I'll kind of speak to those intersections as well. I mentioned last week that you all can give your suggestions for additional intersectional identities that you'd like me to touch on. So I did receive at least one, so I want to talk about that as well. But I want to start off with gender because I think it's so um, prevalent. And I think because... Um, there, because sexism and misogyny and misogynoir are so prevalent in our society and so much of the culture is based in patriarchy, I think gender is one that really makes a big impact. And so colorism impacts people of all genders, right? Regardless of our gender identity, we can, we likely are being impacted by colorism, right? But because we live in patriarchal societies, many of us, most of us, it is disproportionately impacting women and femmes, right? Because we are most harshly judged based on our physical appearances because privilege can compound, but so can marginalization and oppression, right? It compounds, it is exacerbated. And a big part of that is because traditionally speaking, darker skin has been associated with masculinity, right? They have, that narrative has been propagated and spread throughout most cultures. And the notion that feminine, femininity or that feminine people are more feminine bodies should inherently be lighter or whiter, right? Or have longer hair or straighter hair. Which brings me to another intersection, which are features in hair textures. So I've said in the past that a decade ago, over a decade ago, when I first started talking about colorism, people weren't using featurism and texturism as separate terms. And so I was including them in the umbrella of colorism. But now that we have more nuanced vocabulary, I am, you know, making those their, their distinct things. And so even amongst dark-skinned people, if you have thinner features or if you have a straighter hair texture, then you have a form of privilege. You have some advantage over darker skinned people who also have Afro textured hair or who also have wide noses or full lips, right? And featureism, anytime you hear those isms, right, it is a hierarchy. And so people have stigmatized wider noses and, and really thick lips, right? And I know people are saying, oh, but you know, you have white people getting injections to make their lips fuller, right? But there's a difference even in the artificially plumped up lips of a white woman, for example, and the naturally full, the naturally thick lips of that many black people have. And so it's, again, these hierarchies are not just personal preferences or just superficial beauty standards. There are stigmas and there is concrete, tangible discrimination 
and sometimes violence perpetuated against these people because their features and their body types and their various types of identities are stigmatized and marginalized and scapegoated, right? In order to project or advance the agenda of oppressive regimes. And then when we talk about texturism and hair, that intersection, I've in the past talked about <laughs> different definitions for texturism and hairism. And I think this is very helpful. I don't think it has caught on necessarily, but I hope it does catch on at some point. But I think we should distinguish between texturism and hairism. And so the definitions I propose are one, texturism is the hierarchy of based on the actual curl pattern, right? Based on the density and the degree of curliness or coiliness that you have to your hair, right? So the actual texture of your natural hair, the way it grows from your scalp, right? That's texturism. And I think it's also useful to have hairism as a different related category that includes texturism, but I think hairism can also include not just the texture of the hair, but also the style of the hair, right? The hairstyle. And so we see people being discriminated and marginalized and um, ostracized because of their hair texture, but we also see that happening because of the hairstyles. And so traditionally black hairstyles, hairstyles that come from, that are born from black culture, like cornrows, like locks, like bantu knots, like afros, like afro puffs, right? These types of hairstyles, regardless of the texture, are also stigmatized. So even if you have, let's say, 2A hair as a black person, your hair is not Afro textured, but you wear it in braids, or you wear it in bantu knots, right? You still might face some level of discrimination because the cultural identity that that hairstyle represents is a stigmatized culture, right? Black culture. And so even if you have 4C hair, or type 4 hair, for example, a hair texture like mine, if I were to straighten it, it would be less stigmatized, right? It's the same texture. My hair is the same texture even if I straighten it, but people will see it as more acceptable. It will be seen as more valued or valid in society if I straighten it, right? But because I choose the style of an Afro, I will experience more discrimination than if I took my same hair texture and wore it straight, okay? So I think that's an important distinction in terms of the intersections of colorism. And a lot of the dark-skinned people I talk about say that for them, it was like, it's the combination of being darker skinned and having a certain hair texture, right? Or it's the combination of being darker skinned and being in a larger body, right? Which is the fifth, what intersection are we on? One, two, three, the fourth intersection that I wanna talk about, which is body type. And so those with larger bodies and those with um, other stigmatized body types, their experiences of colorism are exacerbated because of that, right? And again, as I mentioned, when we think about the quote unquote dark skin beauties that people try to promote in order to address colors and say, oh, well, look at, you know, all these beautiful dark skinned women. And most of them that are celebrated and put forth as positive, positive representations for dark skinned people, most of them are thin women are, you know, muscular or athletic looking people or have an athletic build or a thin build. And so I always use that as an example for me when I'm role modeling how to acknowledge privilege because I'm not just going to ask other people to check their privilege or to acknowledge it. I also have to be very clear and very open and honest about the ways that I am privileged as well. And so having been a dark skinned person, but always having been tall and thin, I know that I'm not as stigmatized. I have not faced 
the degree or the levels of bullying, of marginalization, of discrimination that someone who has my skin tone and my hair texture, but also has a larger body or also has um, a, a different body type that's not valued in society, right? And, and, you know, body type also goes into things like disability, right? Or physical ability as well. And then another really significant intersection that impacts people's experiences of colorism is socioeconomic class. So this was, I read an article about this early on in my studies, so many years ago, that helped me to start to see the intersections of colorism and why you'll have some dark skinned people say, well, I never experienced that. And you'll have other dark skinned people say, well, I experienced that every day, right? And so if you are middle class or if you are wealthy, if you have parents who have college degrees and have worked in corporate jobs and have money and they gave you a car, a brand new Lexus or BMW at 16 or, you know, a lot of your colorism experiences are mitigated. Your money, your class can sometimes be a hedge around you for experiencing colorism. Now, an alternative perspective that I've had from dark skinned people who are sort of upper middle class or grew up in wealthy families is that they felt more exposed to colorism precisely because they were in elite circles. They were in the circles of other bourgeoisie black people. And so they felt even more exposed because of that. But what the research would suggest is that you have more options to compensate or to mitigate for the discrimination that you might experience if you have more money. Okay, and then the last one that I wanna talk about before I look at your suggestions or other intersectional identities that you all want to bring forth to the conversation. And before I share some examples that might apply to brands and businesses, the last one I think is super important, and that is race. So colorism is an intersection of race. Colorism impacts racism, but racism also impacts colorism, right? It's a mutual, mutually influencing systems here. And so when I talk about race and colorism, or race as an intersection of colorism, we have to remember that anti-blackness and the disdain for black people around the globe is plays a huge role in colorism around the world. And so we have to always be talking about that in the framework of colorism, especially in a multicultural context, in a multi-ethnic context, in a global context, is that even um, lighter skinned or browner skinned black people will experience forms of discrimination and types of discrimination that people of other races who are not black will not face, right? And so even if two people have a similar skin tone, if their ethnic identity or their racial identity is different, then perceptions of them are also going to be different, right? And so you might have a dark-skinned Southeast Asian person, for example, um, at least in the United States, right, where they're still perceived as, you know, smart or intelligent, whereas a black person of their the same skin tone is less likely to be seen that way, right? And so we also have to look at the intersection of race. If you're just joining, I'm talking about intersectionality and colorism, and I just outlined some of the most common, the most frequent identities or features or aspects of who we are that people have reported as influencing, significantly influencing their experiences of colorism. I'm going into my Q&A section, so if you have questions or follow-up comments, I mentioned that you can, one, just say hello, let me know where you're watching from, but also if there are other aspects of your identity that you want to bring to the conversation, then please do that. This is 
an ongoing series of corporate based on my ebook corporate colorism and so i do want to share a couple of examples that i see happening often in marketing and casting and in leadership and senior management and so when we look at marketing and casting you all know because i've talked about this so many times but it bears repeating i don't mind repeating myself until everyone on the planet is aware and knows these things i'm happy to keep saying the same thing because i want everyone to know and be reminded of these things so some of these intersections show up a lot in commercials and advertisements and magazines and in casting right so the entertainment industry is a business right it is uh, also corporate and so when we are casting people, whether even if it's like hiring um, people to do rendering or graphics for a company, we have to go back to the intersection of gender where when you do see representations of dark skinned people, a lot of times they are men or masculine, right? And if they are paired with or partnered with um, someone who is supposed to be a woman or supposed to be more feminine, a lot of times that person will be lighter than the man or the masculine individual, right? And then also, again, the dark-skinned women who are represented in these roles, if they are represented, they are more likely to be cisgendered and thin, right? And so there's, even when we are representing dark-skinned people, we are very traditional about it in other ways. So either it's the dark-skinned representation is a man or a masculine figure, or it's um, a very thin um, thin noses, thin body, right? Or straighter hair textures for if they are a woman or a feminine individual. And I, I'll go into later in future upcoming live streams, I'll talk about representation, not just in terms of quality, but also quantity. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be good. I'll be able to dive more deeply into what I'm, I'm saying here in terms of representation. But another one is thinking about leadership and senior management. Um, so again, you have the accepted it's a, more acceptable for a dark-skinned man to be assertive right whereas if a dark-skinned woman is being setting up boundaries and being assertive she's hard to work with or she's difficult to work with and then not to mention perceptions of intelligence or perceptions of being who's professional and who's not all these things are being influenced by colorism and people with lighter skin tones fare better in terms of these implicit biases and another thing we see sometimes is that when there are darker skinned people represented, a lot of times they aren't black, right? And so you might have management or a, a board of people where there's a lot of diversity, even in, even in skin tones. Even if you have ethnic and racial and skin tone diversity, you might still not have any black people in leadership or you might have not have any black people on that board, right? So those are some ways that we have to be able to recognize these things and see them even in our workplaces. All right, so now it's time for comments and questions. We have a little over 10 minutes. I'm gonna start with Instagram just because my phone is front and center here. Hey y'all, thank you for joining. Just watch your TED Talk, incredible, thank you. Yay, um, hey from London, hi Marley Bob. I haven't seen you in a while, thank you. Um, hey Nika, uh, thank you for your work. You are most welcome, thank you for supporting the work. Uh, Tina Hall 9805 says, shorter stature accompanied by young children comes with a level of acceptance than my larger counterparts with no children. Thank you for sharing that, Tina. Having children, I think your status, right, 
is actually a really good point to make. So perceptions of people based on whether they are have children, whether they are mother or father, whether they are partnered, married, single, right? All these things are also the stereotypes kind of compound and get exacerbated depending on your skin tone. Um, very powerful to add hairism. Thank you. Says Alisa. Alyssa says the distinction makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I'm glad it does. Um, oh, wow. I did not know you were going to make that connection. I-K-T-R-R. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. What that means. Uh, all right. Any questions on Instagram? Let me see. Um, to your point about hairism as a term to be used, would that not be anti-blackness? Or are you just proposing a more specific term? Yes, I'm proposing a more specific term. Um, Anti-blackness encompasses all the things, whereas colorism, featureism, hairism help you to identify the specific mechanisms by which anti-blackness manifests. Um, Laren, also, do you take topic requests? I do take topic requests. Um, I have, um, I mentioned that you can include other intersections that you want to drop in the chat, right, that I haven't mentioned yet. But also going forward in the series, I have topics planned out for several weeks, but I'm happy to take requests or maybe there's already a topic coming up that I can tie what you're interested in to that topic. Yeah, I'm here for y'all. I'm not here to just hear myself talk. So if y'all want to know something or discuss something, please let me know. Okay, I think I've gotten to the bottom of my Instagram comments. Let's come over here to LinkedIn and YouTube. Y'all are active over here. Good afternoon from Houston. Hey, Danielle. Um, we here, Michael, I'm so glad that we are here. <laughs> um, hey, Tarvinder. hey, Aya. Um, this is a conversation I'm not hearing often. Thank you. You're most welcome, Danielle. I agree. I mean, I'm biased, obviously. I think even more people should talk about colorism. Um, but I, you know, hopefully these lives that I'm doing empowers people to start conversations in their own circles as well. Um, Jai White says, thank you for the timely conversation. I had a conversation with a colleague regarding colorism and how the topic is completely overlooked in the DEI space. Yes, Jai White. That is so true. And I think for DEI leaders who are black or other people of color, um, colorism requires that we do the kind of work that we often ask white people to do. So one of my critiques of a lot of DEI spaces is that they often center education for white people. And let's just be honest, like, are they center education for men, right? A lot of DEI is focused on educating the people with the most power or privilege. Um, and so colorism is asking us to do work that we have been kind of pointing fingers at white people for, right? Or kind of telling white people, check your privilege. And all of a sudden you're a black person or an Indian person or, you know, um, someone of a different race. And you're like, oh, I actually have to acknowledge the fact that I also have privilege in this way, or I also have this bias. And, you know, someone else was saying how a lot of DEI teams and professionals are actually perpetuating some of the same things that they claim to work and fight against. Okay. I'm trying to scroll up on my laptop with my finger. Forgot. This is different. Um, Tarvinder says, how about physicality, height? Dr. Webb, I am keen to hear your views on this. So with height, I haven't seen much in the research about height, but a lot of people mention height as 
something else that's also stigmatized. And so when I talk about the ways that I'm privileged, I mentioned being tall and thin. So I'm thin, but I'm also tall. Um, it's interesting because there's, it also depends on, on gender sometimes, right? So being a man who's also short uh, might be more stigmatized than being a woman who's also short, right? But thinking about how if you have one identity that's stigmatized and then you add on another identity that's stigmatized, then you are looked on less favorably, right? So if you are in a culture that stigmatizes or devalues um, people with shorter heights, then that becomes even worse if you're also dark-skinned. <laughs> um, Danielle says, being, a, being in certain groups based on colorism and socioeconomics, intersectional. Networking, sororities, country clubs, schools, corporations. Right. And so I think, Danielle, Denise, um, dark-skinned people, especially dark-skinned women who have the socioeconomic class to be in these country clubs or, you know, corporate networking events, right? They find that there are fewer of them. There are fewer dark-skinned women in those spaces. And so what they were saying is that they felt more exposed to colorism because so many of the other people around them were lighter-skinned. How about the intersection that accents bring? So this is a good one, Tarvinder. Well, one, the assumption of who has an accent and who doesn't or the surprise about what your accent sounds like, right? And so if you see someone who looks like me and they have um, a British accent, well, in the United, if you're in the US and you see someone who looks like me and they have a British accent, you might be shocked or surprised or, oh my gosh. This is kind of related to, to what people say when um, you're speaking and someone says, oh my gosh, you're so articulate. I can't believe you're so articulate, right? And so there are, um, stigmas placed on certain groups of people. And because the people are stigmatized, then their language or their dialect or their accent is also stigmatized. And when you have um, an accent, even if you are lighter skinned, for example, or even if you are a man, or even if you have other forms of privilege, a lot of times in people's eyes, that diminishes your intelligence. Right. And I don't know why that is, but people think that if you speak with an accent that that equates to less intelligence, are you being, quote unquote, um, ignorant? Right now, that is actually a display of ignorance on their part. But even and not just like accents from people who speak different languages, but even like southern accents versus a northern accent or an urban accent. Right. Even within um, amongst people who speak the same language even if their accent is representative of a different part of their country or a different neighborhood even, people are also going to assume something about your intelligence or your level of professionalism um, because you speak with a different accent. Uh, Mecca Earth says, how can they know the steps to heal in one way but cannot seem to grip and understand the steps to heal from black self-hatred? Colorism and featurism, even indulging and participating in colorism. Um, so make a earth. Um, I feel like I need a little more context for your question in terms of the they. Uh, Jose Pomposo Baraja says, hello, watching from Los Angeles. Thank you for presenting your research at DLA Piper. This is huge deal 
and big law firms. You're welcome. Looney Coons, would colorism exist if Africans, non-biracial, non-multiracial people rejected the one drop rule? Yes, colorism would still exist. Um, <laughs> Mecca Earth says colorism should be a discussion every day, every week, every month, every year, and it needs to be spoken around children, if not the adults are wasting their breath because they know this already. Black Girl Mystic says, yes, I've been seeing a lot of I was too white for the black kids and too black for the white kids from people of biracial experience. Would love you to talk about the tone deaf privilege. Um, yeah, so in the two minutes I have left, there's, I think I could do a whole live just on the intersection of race and thinking about being biracial or multiracial. Um, but one, I always have to remind people that the experience of feeling like you're not white enough for white people or you're not black enough for black people or whatever you're mixed with, right? So people of different racial mixes feel similarly. That that's not necessary. That's not only not necessary, but that's not colorism, right? Because feeling quote unquote black is a cultural feeling, right? So when I'm talking about colorism, you were talking about the perceptions and the values that people place on you because of your skin tone. And so you could be a dark skinned person and not feel like you belong or fit in with other black people, right? Because of cultural references. If you were not raised in a black household, right? You can still have that same feeling, even if you're dark skinned with Afro textured hair. And so one, we have to not equate that experience or that feeling with colorism. The second thing I'll say is, even if you're talking about mixed people only, even if you're only talking about biracial people, even if you're talking about biracial siblings who have the same parents, those with darker skin tones are going to experience more marginalization and discrimination than mixed race people with lighter skin tones, right? And so that's what, you know, we need people who are multiracial or mixed race to understand is that even if you were just took a room or just took a swath of the country and you only focused on people with mixed race identity or people who were biracial, et cetera, you're, you still have to acknowledge the differences in skin tone, the differences in hair texture, and the fact that even amongst people who are all mixed race, those with lighter skin are going to have more privilege than mixed race people who are darker skin or who have more Afro textured hair types. And so the, the level of, <laughs> I think, deflection or inability to sit with like that discussion and that conversation and the, the sort of compel, compulsive need to redirect it to the painful experiences that they have, I think that's kind of what, that, what I see when I see that happening is focusing on the painful experiences I have from being mixed race so that I don't have to just sit with the fact that I also have privileged, privileged experiences or I also am privileged in that identity as well at the same time. All right. Um, so I'm out of town, out of town. Well, I will be out of town soon, but I'm currently out of, out of time. I'm trying to be very good with myself about sticking to the um, 30 minute framework. <laughs> Uh, 
All right, so these are some good questions. Does colorism exist in white culture, white on white? I will not take the, I will not rush the answer to these questions, but they will be saved in the comments. And so come back, um, get your questions in at the top of the um, live stream so that I'm more likely to see them and have time to answer them. Uh, but I'm gonna be doing this every week. So if you didn't get your question answered today, if you didn't get your comment read today, it's okay, I see you, I still see you. And if you're on LinkedIn or YouTube, then at least your question is saved in the chat for posterity. And your homework is to map your intersections. Identify which aspects of your identity are most often a form of systemic privilege and which aspects of your identity tend to most often be a source or a cause for systemic marginalization, right? And then your affirmation is, I am now becoming more aware of the many facets that shape who I am. So next week I'm talking about monochromatic diversity, which is a term that I created to describe what I see happening a lot in institutions and organizations. Um, yeah, so much love to all of you and I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Take care.